Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm uh, happy to talk here about this very tense topic. Um, let me start. I'm full professor here at this university, but you can hear that I'm Dutch. Uh, and so Brexit meant one thing for me, that my salary went down by 20% in two <laughs> months. It's just to give my feeling about Brexit. <laughs> but there's another thing that you can learn about my salary. That's every month I transfer most of the money to Amsterdam because that's where I live and I have to pay my mortgage. And then I have to be very careful when I do that to transfer the money in British pounds and not in euros. Because the cost of transferring the money from pounds to euros is much higher here in the UK than it is in the Netherlands. It saves me a couple of hundred pounds a month. And so what can we learn from that? We can learn from that that apparently competition apparently competition in the UK isn't that great. That efficiency in the UK, well, efficiency, I don't know. It, it can either be efficiency or it can be that banks make a lot of profit. It's either of the two. Um, I suspect both. Um, and that's an important lesson. Um, we're supposed to look forward, but I can't avoid also looking back, back uh, a bit. Looking back to the period when the UK entered the European Union, 1973-1974, that was a very bad time for the UK. The UK was doing very badly. It had to request the support of the IMF. Of the IMF. Um, so that was really saying something like, uh, we can't stand ourselves anymore. It's really, UK is in, in deep trouble. And so the accession to the EU started a period of great prosperity for the EU. For the UK, also for the EU, by the way. But that's, um, and that was because product markets were opened up, competition was intensifying, and hence a lot of things become more, became more efficient in that period. As always, if you increase efficiency by allowing free trade, that comes at a cost. The, the minor strike is one of the clearest examples of the cost that is associated with this type of opening up the global competition. But on average, the UK came out much better 10 years later. Um, you might like Thatcher or not, but the things he said, look here, the UK looks much better. Now I quit than when I came. In that respect, he was pretty right. Um, and I think this relates to a general lesson. If you look in economic history in the past uh, 70 years since World War II, opening up to global trade has been a recipe for success for almost any country. There is no country which succeeded in catching up to the world leader, the US, without opening up to free trade. Just mention the the most important examples of the past decade, China and India, who were very close from foreign competitions till the 80s and then gradually opened up with enormous impact. 
think before of the, the Asian, the small Asian tigers, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Taiwan, South Korea. Think of Japan. Also think of reverse examples of Cyprus. Cyprus being split in 1974 between Turkish Cyprus and Greek Cyprus. Turkish Cyprus being very closed from world competition. Greek Cyprus being very open to world competition. The level of wealth, the wealth differential between both parts of Cyprus now, just 40 years later, is enormous. Uh, think of Korea, think of Germany. They're all examples of how important free trade is. That is one, one thing. The second thing is that people tend to make a large distinction between free trade and migration. I think both are two of a kind. Basically, what is free trade that is moving the jobs to the place where the people are available at the lowest price, the lowest wage, who can do the job? <coughs> One is migration, move the people who don't earn as much at home than they earn at the, at the new country to the job. So the one is moving the jobs to the people, the other is moving the people to the jobs. In tradable industries, you can move the jobs to the people. In non-tradable industries, by construction, you move the people to the jobs. Polish construction workers who basically build the city in London. And so, the strong distinction we make between the two is very problematic. Um, now, so that's one important issue. Now then, if you think about the Brexit campaign, what was surprising for me <coughs> as a non-British person here in, in, in the UK, but also before I was appointed here, if you look at talking to people from the UK over the past 20 years, is the type of self-evident, almost inevitable nature of the process towards Brexit. We were surprised, not that much, I must admit, by the outcome of the, the referendum, but in some sense, the the climate here in, in, in England for Brexit was there for a long time. And um, that was always embedded in a rhetorical free trade. We want to get out of the EU because then we can really have free trade. Then we can revitalize our old Commonwealth connection. Um, I think that that rhetoric has always been flawed. I think that what we now, after the coming out of Brexit of, of May uh, during the Conservative Congress a couple of weeks ago, we now know for sure that Brexit is not about more free trade, it's about less free trade. And given history, we know what is the danger of that. Um, in that sense, that's not really a surprise that coming out of May. Because the anti-free trade sentiment is not typical for the UK. It's basically all wealthy countries, all OECD countries have a similar type of sentiment. If I look at my own country, which is more free trade by now than the UK, which is quite an accomplishment because still so far the UK was the big propagandist of free trade. But we have Geert Wilders. France has <coughs> Marie Le Pen. And also in the, in the US, we now expect Hillary Clinton to win. You never know what happens in the last couple of weeks. 
But the popularity of Donald Trump makes clear that something has changed in the global attitude toward free trade. Something that we have to take serious, but also have to realize that's very dangerous. That the outcome of that can only be bad. So we, we can't avoid that we have to accommodate to that, that policymakers have to realize that they need to get support for free trade, or they need to get support for their policy, and since free trade is not that popular, you have to find tricks to deal with that. Um, but that's very important. Larry Summers wrote a piece in the FT now two months ago, where he exactly made that point. And I think Larry Summers is something like the, the the test of what is the sentiment among policymakers, his idea was we must make, we must take account of what the popular vote, the popular sentiment is about global trade. So in some way we have to deal with that. I think that's a very important thing. Um, maybe one remark before I try to look forward. Um, that is the nature of the EU. Again, there are, there are two rhetorics. One rhetoric is that it is Brussels against the member states. That is Jean-Claude Juncker and the Brussels bureaucrats who impose bad regulation upon the member states. I think that that rhetoric is basically nonsense. What drives the EU at this point in time is the European Council, the meeting where all prime ministers or presidents of all member states meet and decide on the course that the EU is taking. And so that is what is the essence of the EU. It's a compromise made from meeting of the European Council to meeting of the European Council between 27 member states or 28, depends whether how you count. Um, and that compromise is a very delicate compromise. Making a compromise with 28 people is something very difficult. And so if you have that compromise, changing that compromise is even harder. Because if you want to change the compromise, it's nice if everybody gets better. But getting from one position to another with making one person worse off, another person better off, that's infeasible. Because that one person or that one country will object. And I think that what is typical for the discussion in Brexit is that I think that the UK hasn't sufficiently realized that nature of the EU. That saying we want to renegotiate the compromise is almost impossible. Because if you want to renegotiate, you want a better deal. Somebody else gets a worse deal. It is not that you get a better deal from Brussels that Brussels gives in and the UK gets more. It is that the UK gets more at the expense of some other the member states. So in any discussion forward, it is dealing that you strike with 27 other countries. And they are not that friendly anymore. They hate you leaving. The Dutch in particular, we hate that you left or that you planned to leave. Um, so, if you then look from that point forward, given the importance of free trade, and given so 
despite the fact that people had the rhetoric that leaving would be in favor of free trade. I think the opposite is true. A hard Brexit will inevitably lead to less free trade for Britain. Maybe in the long run we can fix everything. In the long run we're all dead. So that's the famous statement here from Cambridge. Um, but so a hard Brexit will really be very dangerous for the UK. So try to make the Brexit as soft as possible. Um, that's one big lesson. How to do that, I don't know. Uh, and uh, maybe judges are more important at that point, at this point in time, to the UK than politicians. But there's also a second lesson. That's the more problematic lesson, and that's a lesson that is not only applied to the UK. That is that that sense of losing identity due to globalization. That's not typical UK. That is not typically England. It prevails in my country, it prevails in many other countries, it prevails in the US. And so any policy that has a chance of convincing the voters, getting the support of the voters, must take account of that identity policy. How to do that exactly, I don't I have no clear plan answer. Um, so in some way dealing with migration is clearly part of the deal, because not only the UK is not the only country where people feel uncomfortable with the large flows of people. Those flows will go on, by the way. But, that's but this two things, take account of identity politics, because identity politics is not going to disappear the next 10 years, and make Brexit as soft as possible. That would be my, my general recommendation. Thank you very much. Thank you.